Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Hello, this is John Spear, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.Guru, and you've tuned in to the Global Medical Device Podcast. On today's episode, the topic is first in human. What are you doing to prepare for those first in human studies? Are you going here in the U.S. for those studies overseas? Do you have your design controls and risk management where they need to be? What about your quality system? A lot of things to address as you approach first in human. With me on this episode is Mike Drews of Vascular Sciences. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, this is John Spear, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.Guru, and welcome to another episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Today, I've got my good buddy, Mike Drews. Mike is the president of Vascular Sciences. Mike consults with FDA. He consults with Health Canada. He consults with other regulatory bodies. Oh, yeah, and he consults with medical device companies. His job, his mission in life is to help get medical products to market as quickly as possible and cutting through all that red tape in the meantime. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, John. Always a pleasure to be with you and your audience. And, Mike, I I know we catch you on the road today. It seems like you're traveling from coast to coast, all of the globe. So, uh, you know, you've got an exciting life, you know, (laughs) doing all kinds of things. I mean, what what is it like, really, to to work with FDA on one day and then the next day to be working with a med device company? I can imagine that's really interesting. Well, to tell you the truth, John, travel challenges aside, I really love it because yeah. it really gives me working working both for companies as well as the FDA and other regulatory agencies. It really gives me, um, I don't want to say a unique perspective, but certainly an uncommon perspective sure. because I truly am able to see a lot of these issues from both sides. Yeah. And I really use that, try to use that to my advantage when I work with companies to try to get them to look at things from the FDA's perspective. And similarly, when I work with the FDA or Health Canada or uh, HSA in Singapore or whoever, uh, to try to get them to look at it from the company's perspective. So simply put, I, I, uh, I love what I do and I, and I try to use it to my advantage. All right. Well, that's great to hear. So, Michael, in line with the work that you do, in line with the work that I do, a common theme or, or milestone that companies are often in pursuit of is this first in man or first in human study that, you know, that developing a technology to a point where you can get it to a stage where it can be used clinically to, to either gather data or demonstrate that a concept works. So I, I imagine that you have people asking you, hey, Mike, how, how quickly can I get this device be used in human clinical studies? I'm sure that question comes up often. It does frequently, John, and just like in the drug world, we want to try to get our devices into actual people as soon as we possibly can because, after all, what good is it to anybody to pursue a design for a medical device, uh, spend lots of time and money uh, on it only to come to find that when we do get it into people, it doesn't work for whatever reason and, therefore, we've you know wasted a bunch of time and money. 
So I think most people appreciate the value, the utility, the importance of getting it into to people uh, as early as possible. What it really comes down to is the logistics. The question that I get, and I'm going to throw this back to you, John, is if we're going to, if we're still, for example, in the proof of concept phase, and I happen to be in California right now, I just had this conversation with a company that I'm working with out here. If we're still in the proof of concept phase, in other words, we think this device might work, it probably will work, but we don't know for sure, not to any degree of certainty. We want to get it into a, a, a person. And do we need to be making these initial devices according to CGMPs? Do we need to have a quality system in place? Do we have to have design controls? So maybe, John, you want to give some some advice or an example on how we can meet our regulatory obligations and, more importantly, our ethical obligations, but at the same time not not constructing so many barriers in terms of time and money that it just doesn't make it feasible to a company, especially a small company, to, to do this. Sure. No, that's, that's a, a great, great question. And one that uh, it comes up often, you know, if you're going to, my opinion is this, you know, if you're going to go to take your device, regardless if it's super early proof of concept or if it's late, st- later stage, there's a couple of questions that, that you definitely need to answer. And one of those questions is, is around safety. How do you know that that product is safe for actual human use? And there's all kinds of different technologies, whether it be an electrical device or or a, a catheter-type product or a patient-contacting-type product. There are things that, that the medical device product developer is, is morally and ethically obligated to do in, in ensuring that that product that they're going to be using on humans is safe. Now, I realize there's levels to this, but... Keep in mind that the whole prom, uh, premise behind design controls is about demonstrating that your product is safe. There's also a component of effective and, you know, the, the, of course, human clinical use is one means to be able to demonstrate some effectiveness of that product as well. But, but safe is, is definitely the key word. And I'm a big proponent of design controls. And even if you're going to go very early stage with a proof of concept product, I'm a big proponent of let's capture design control criteria. Now, you may not have the the final device design controls that you're that you're dealing with. It may be again this early early version, but there's still things like user needs and design inputs and outputs and verification activities that you can do to capture, document, and ensure that that product is safe. Mike, do you have different thoughts on that? Actually, John, my thoughts are exactly in alignment with with yours, I think, and we've talked about this topic before. I think the most important thing, whether whether we're, you know, filling out all the forms, whether we're dotting our I's and crossing our T's, perhaps I shouldn't say this in a podcast recording, but I don't really care. That's not the important part. The important part is, as you just alluded to, we're doing the things that we should be doing, that we need to be doing, that makes sense from an engineering and a and a biology perspective. You know, issues like uh, you mentioned safety, that's a very nebulous term. So let's get a sure. tiny bit more specific in terms of biocompatibility, in terms of sterility, in terms of electrical safety. I mean, the, the list is endless. Mm-hmm. So even in the early proof of concept phase, I think it's very important that we are doing those kinds of things. 
And one other thing that I've noticed is that oftentimes people use the phrase clinical trial almost mm -hmm. in a generic or nebulous sense. But to me, there are lots of different, mm, shall we say, types of clinical trials. In other words, for very early proof of concept work, I might not have any intention whatsoever of collecting formal data and presenting it to the FDA or anybody else. I might right. simply have, say, 10 different iterations on the same medical device design. It's not feasible for me to pursue all 10 of them. I need to narrow that down to perhaps two or three. Yeah. And all I want to find out is which two or three of these 10 are worth pursuing. In that particular yeah, case, absolutely. you know, it's not going to be nearly as, as complicated. We're talking about doing something really quick, really simple, really easy, ideally fast and cheap as well. Now, that said, that's not an excuse for not doing all of those things that you just alluded to a moment ago. But it doesn't have to be, you know, as nearly um, as overwhelming as it can be. A lot, I think a lot of people get very turned off to clinical trials because they just think it's, it's going to be a lot of time, it's going to be a lot of money, it's going to be a lot of paperwork. And oftentimes that's the case, but it does not have to be that way. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. And yeah, I think sometimes when people hear the term, a term like design control or risk management, that automatically, you know, their antenna go up and, and they're thinking, whoa, this is overly burdensome, heavy undocumentation and so on. And you said something a moment ago that, that I want to dive into just a bit further. You said, you know, you don't care if they fill, if the person fills out all the forms or makes it, you know, nice and pretty and, you know, but I agree with you. You know, you, you got to have the proof. You got to have, you got to be able to point to some sort of objective evidence, some sort of uh, report or criteria or evidence in some way that says, yeah, that's safe. You know, that biocompatibility is, is a good one, right? So if, I, if I'm going to use my product and I'm going to be contacting a person, I should have substantial evidence to support that, hey, we address that body contact and duration for this, this type of product. And I need to have, whether it be data reports or some sort of evidence that, that I can use. I mean, again, it's, it's about being able to show and demonstrate that safety. So I think that's really key. Once again, John, you, you and I are singing exactly the same song there. <laughs> and just to be clear, I don't want to give people the impression that filling out the forms is not important. That's not right. my message here. But I have seen situations more than I would like to admit, to be honest, where companies have filled out the forms, so to speak, correctly. All of their paperwork is in order, and from a design control or a quality management system perspective, they're doing you know everything that they're required to do. But the content, quite frankly, is crap. Yeah. And you know, there's sort of an expression sometimes people use. It's like putting lipstick on a pig. You know, I just don't want to get to to lose track of what's most important. Yeah, um, I'm with you. I'm with you right there. I mean, the thing about that people, I think, get uh, lose the concept of at least, you know, from again from my perspective on design controls. Design controls, uh, it's oftentimes shown as a linear or a waterfall process, like a progression. But my way of looking at design controls, it's, it's iterative. You know, I, I, you know, especially let's use this, this idea of I'm going to take this proof of concept version to human clinical use. Well, I'm going to go through a pretty quick pass of user needs and inputs and outputs and verification activities. And then I'm going to use the information that I gather from this, this first and human study. 
and I'm going to feed it back in, and I may go back and revisit my user needs and inputs and outputs and verification, verification again. So it's iterative, and the whole intent here is that every time I, I do something, I want to learn something, and I want to add value to the overall uh, safety and efficacy of my product. Once again, John, you and I are in complete agreement there, and I think what we're both saying in different words, but the message is the same, and that is obviously the regulation is important and following, you know, the, the regulation, you know, is something that we need to do, but let's not tr- lose track of the, the big picture here and, and yeah. what is what is really important at the end of the day. Yeah. So, John, why don't we come back to the original question of clinical data, and we've talked a little bit about doing early stage proof of principle kind of human yeah. testing. What about when we get into the process a little bit further along and we already have a working prototype, maybe we already have a design freeze, and now you know we're working on a medical device where human data is actually required for regulatory clearance or approval. And by the way, as your audience probably knows, even in the 510K world, the number of devices that are requiring human data now is rapidly increasing. Yeah. In the past, it's been very small. As yeah. a matter of fact, here's a statistic for your audience. Greater than 95% of medical devices that we have on the market today here in the United States, greater than 95% of them have never been tested in a, in a clinical trial, uh, yeah. at least not for regulatory reasons. But assuming that we're in that universe of devices that do require clinical data, Another challenge, and we see this in the drug world frequently as well, is more and more companies are wanting to do this kinds of work overseas, outside the U.S., in Europe, or perhaps in some some other country. Any thoughts of what people should be looking out for or thinking about there? Well, and and I want to also throw in that twist. I mean, obviously, the regulatory piece is is important from a, a clinical perspective, but a lot of the companies that you and I interact with, they're also uh, backed by investors. And investors, you know, a, a huge in, investor or a significant milestone to, to raise additional capital uh, is often tied to first-in-human type studies, too. So sometimes that's what's driving a lot of that interest in, in these studies. And, you know, the obviously, the, the you mentioned the outside U.S., that's an area that a lot of startups, I, I think, are exploring these days, and probably well-established companies as well, but going outside the U.S. because sometimes the the regulatory constraints are a little less, we'll just say, stringent than, than maybe doing a clinical study in the United States. And, you know, I, th- I think that comes with additional challenges. I know you probably have uh, a lot to say about that, you know, as you work with FDA, as you work with Health Canada and other regulatory bodies. I, I can imagine that that uh, that's a really really difficult topic to address sometimes because if I'm going to go outside the U.S. and do a study outside the U.S., I want to be able to use that data for any sort of FDA type submissions downstream. So what do I need to do? Do you have any suggestions? Yes, I do, John. I have several. So first of all, as you alluded to, the primary motivation for companies for doing offshoring of of human studies is primarily the lower regulatory burden as well as oftentimes lower costs and quicker, uh, shorter time frames and so on. That said, if you plan on using this data as part of a U.S. submission or EU submission or, or one of the other submissions from you know the, the, the major parts of the world, you definitely have to keep that in mind. 
Now, the most important piece of advice, because I see companies making this mistake all the time, is uh, historically, let's just talk about here in the United States, historically, FDA has not been keen on taking data from outside the U.S. as part of a U.S. submission. And the primary reason for that, and I've, like you, I've been playing this game now for a long time, so I've seen a bit of an evolution in thinking here. The primary reason for that is that there are some countries, for example, in the EU, where physicians are notorious for not following protocols. And anybody that knows anything about statistics knows that when you start to try to pool your data from investigator to investigator and site to site, if not everybody is doing things the same way, it's like doing an apples to oranges comparison and you really can't do that. So the most important thing is that we show that every that all of our investigators are doing the same thing, following the, the, the protocol. And I don't mean just on paper, but actually in the clinic or wherever your device is being used. Right. Now, the most common the most common way to do that is by using what's called a clinical monitor, where basically they will observe the the procedure and they will uh, document or attest to the fact that yes, this physician you know did this a certain way. So as long as we can do that. It really doesn't matter where on the globe that we do this trial. As a matter of fact, I think the whole notion, as we've been operating in this industry for a very long time, of doing clinical trials, essentially the same trial in different parts of the world, just to satisfy different regulatory authorities, I think that's ridiculous. You know, yeah. it just doesn't make any sense. Right. So as long as we can show that everybody is doing it the same way, there isn't a problem. More recently, I think just within the last six months or maybe a year, FDA put out a, a guidance specifically on using data from outside the U.S. as part of a, of a U.S. submission. If anybody's interested, send me an email. I'll be happy to send you a copy of that guidance, or you can certainly get it on FDA's website. But there's nothing in there, in my opinion, that's, that's new. You know, this is just, you know, stuff that some of us have been doing for, for a very long time. So in, in the last example I'll give real quick is I know now at least two, perhaps there are more, but at least two medical devices, uh, these are PMA devices, that have gotten U.S. approvals based 100% on OUS data. Mm-hmm. In other words, there was no U.S. data as part of that FDA submission. Now, that's still the exception rather than the rule, at least for right now, but I see that as a trend for the future. In other places in the world, for example, in Japan, I can't see that any ever happening. I can't see Japan ever approving a device for the Japanese market based on outside of Japan data. But here in the U.S. and most other places, as long as you keep in mind those couple of things that I said, I think you'll be okay. Well, and the Japan example is is a good one. I mean, I I know of at least one uh, product uh, several years ago that uh, was introduced in the Japanese market. I don't know all the logistics that, that led it there, but let's just say that there was a technology involved in the product that had an adverse reaction to people of Asian descent, and, and it created a big issue in, in Japan and uh, you know, where, where patients were having uh, reactions, allergic reactions to the technology. And I, I'm sure there are other reasons for why, but but I think that's the key point. And you know, Japan is is oftentimes an extreme case. But but the the point that I want to touch on a little bit is 
it doesn't matter, you know, and perhaps matters less is probably a better way to say it, where in the world you gather that data. But it's important that that, that human clinical data, it represents the, the actual intended use and it represents the actual patient population. So I can imagine clinical statistics and, and demographics and inclusion, exclusion criteria and endpoints. I mean, those are all things that are very, very important as well. So it's not like you can just Say, all right, Mike, we got some prototypes. We, we did our biocompatibility. We did some sterilization testing. It's, it's good to go. We're going to, where do you want to go tomorrow, Mike? We're going to go uh, hop on a plane and just go there and, you know, and sign up a few people and, and use, uh, use our product in a clinical setting. I mean, obviously there's, there's still good science that, that needs to be involved. Right. So now what we're getting into is what parts of the world do we want to go and do this? That's a topic of a whole different discussion. It's, it's <laughs> under the, the general umbrella of what I call international regulatory strategy. But basically my quick advice is I look for places in the world to go that satisfy two criteria. The first is they have a decent level of medical technology. And the second is they have little or no regulation. Now, if you apply those two criteria, uh, decent medical technology and little or no regulation, my two favorite places to go are Mexico and India. That doesn't necessarily mean that people in Mexico or India are of inherently less worth than anybody else. That's not what I'm trying to imply here. But based on those criteria, those are my favorite. Now, more recently, I try to stay away from India because there's just been too many situations in the clinical trial world, especially for drugs, where people have, let me just say, get got caught doing things that they're not supposed to be yes. doing and so on. And so I don't want to suffer from the guilt by association factor. So right. my my favorite at the moment is Mexico. And in addition, it's got the logistical advantage that it's at least in the same sure. hemisphere. Right. So you could go, for example, to, you know, to sub-Saharan Africa, like Togo or something like that. Right. They have no regulation, but they also don't have any medical technology either. Yeah. So those are my thinking on that. Do you agree, John? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, there are parts of the world, I and mean, I've heard of, of uh, some of the companies that I work with going to parts of uh, Eastern Europe. Is seems to be pretty common, and and yep. there are you know other parts of Asia as well. So I think you know it's it's the technology piece is important. I mean, obviously, especially if you have a device that requires it be plugged in. I mean, you want you want somewhat uh, a place where the electricity is stable and things of that nature. Of the, course. The other twist that I've heard recently, Mike, is about uh, some of these earlier stage startups. They're they're Tying in a um, more of a social cause to what they're doing, and and they're developing a technology or a product or med device that, that may be needed, but but it's like they're almost developing for it for a part of the world where there is no technology, you know. So I guess that's a twist that can come into play, you know. Like I've heard of sub-Saharan uh, Africa being a target for uh, first the human studies for that exact reason. So. You know there are twists and turns that you get into, and and again, I think it's important that that as you develop your technology, as you go for these first in in human studies, your your point earlier, there's no reason why I should have to repeat clinical study after clinical study and after clinical study, and in various markets. If I'm doing you know being strategic about this, I can do it one time and be able to address multiple different regulatory markets. So. 
Mike, I know we've talked about quite a bit on this topic of first with human, and we probably, you know, throughout our conversation this morning have uh, touched on a lot of issues and problems uh, to, to try to prevent and avoid at all costs. But any other tips that, that we want to provide to, to our audience today, things to look out for so that you can avoid problems later? Well, the, the one last thing that I'll mention, and I see a lot of small and startup companies doing this, they tend to be attracted to non-significant risk or NSR devices, in part because they think they can avoid having to deal with the FDA, because as your audience probably knows, if you have an NSR device, and by the way, that determination is left to the company, not to the FDA. Uh, so if you determine that your device is NSR, technically, according to the regulatory textbook, you do not have to go to the FDA in advance. An IDE is not required. You do still have to get the IRB to, to give you their blessing, so to speak, but not the FDA. I have seen it happen a number of times where companies do that, and then when they do take the data to the FDA as part of their 510k submission, for example, FDA says, what the heck is going on? We don't, we don't agree that this is NSR, and therefore now we have all kinds of, of, of problems. So even in the situations where a device is believed to be NSR, I take that to the FDA prophylactically in advance as a matter of professional courtesy. I go in there and I say, look, I'm not asking you anything. I'm simply letting you know as a matter of professional courtesy, here's our device, here's the way it works, uh, here's our labeling, here's the testing that we've done. Based on all of these reasons, this device is not significant risk. We are not required to be here. We are not asking you for your permission to begin a clinical trial. We're going to be doing that starting next month. But we do want to make you aware of what we're doing, and you know we want to do it together and so on and so on. It's another example of my mantra, uh, which I've shared before, and that is tell, don't ask, lead, don't follow. Right. So, you know, it's just I've found in playing this game now for nearly two and a half decades that the vast majority of problems that companies run into, not only are they preventable, but they're predictable. And I see lots of people making the same mistakes over and over. And so, you know, again, as, as we've talked about before, don't treat the FDA as your as the enemy, but treat them as, as your partner. And I think like the old adage says, you'll rape what you sow. Right. So on that tell, don't ask, and you talked about communicating to FDA that this is what you're doing and, and, do, and you said doing so prophylactically. What is the vehicle or the mechanism or, or the type of, how would, I, how would you communicate that? I mean, would you do that in like a pre-submission? Would it be a documented thing? Would you pick up the phone and call? And if so, who do you who do you communicate that information to at the FDA? Well, that's a great question, John, and it, and it truly is the topic of a of a different discussion. Maybe we'll do okay. another podcast on this. Sure. But simply put, the most common way that this is done today is through a pre-submission or a pre-sub process. My strong advice is to do this the old-fashioned way. In other words, in a in a physical meeting, as opposed to you know just sending in some them pieces of paper, but I, I would definitely bring that up as part of a pre-sub. I probably would not make that the sole goal of the pre-sub. I would, I would put that, you know, within two or three objectives of the pre-sub, but that's where I would bring it up. All right. Well, that's, that's great advice. And, and you know, any other parting words that, that we want to share with our audience today on the topic of, of first and human and 
whether or not to do it outside the U.S. versus U.S., the non-significant risk versus significant risk, Any, anything else that we want to share with the audience today, Mike? Well, just one other, because, again, I've, I've seen a lot of companies, including some of the largest medical device companies on Earth, make some of the most basic, the most amateur mistakes that, quite frankly, they should never make. So just one last thing I'll mention that comes back to what I what I said earlier uh, about international regulatory strategy. I see it happen very, very often where a company will do a clinical trial in one place to satisfy the regulatory criteria for that particular country, and then they move on to country number two, only to come to find that country number two wants a piece of information that country number one didn't want, and now they have to do a clinical trial over again to collect that additional information. In my opinion, that's a that's a totally amateur mistake. That should never happen. It's very time-consuming. It's very expensive. It's very inefficient. So the way you prevent that from happening is very simple. You come up with your international regulatory strategy. That is, you identify the first three or four or five countries in the world that you want to do business in. Please don't say you want to do business everywhere right away because that's probably not going to happen. But the first, you know, two or three or four or five, you pool their regulatory requirements, and that is you find out what all of those first countries are going to want, and then you design your clinical trial in order to capture all of that information. And I take that a step further not just the regulatory information, but what information are you going to need in those countries for reimbursement as well? Uh And you put that into your clinical trial design. So bottom line, yes, clinical trials are time-consuming and expensive, no question about it. But because we make so many mistakes and because we don't take so many of these things into account, let's put it this way, we can be doing this a heck of a lot more efficiently than most people do it today. And, And that's you know, I spend, you know, a lot of my time, as, as I know you do as well, working with companies to try to prevent them from making these kinds of amateur mistakes that uh, I see happen, unfortunately, all too often. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I guess from my perspective, the key thing is always about making sure that, that what we're doing, and I'll, I'll steal a line that, that you've offered in previous podcasts, that, that all that you're doing during this, this process of bringing medical devices to market is, is really about following prudent engineering practices. You know, we talked about earlier in this session about the importance of safety and, and ensuring that products that I'm bringing to that, the humans, to be used on humans are safe. And, and ultimately the, the goal, the objective of, of following things like design controls and risk management throughout the, the design and development process are just that. They're about demonstrating that your product is safe and, and effective for the intended uses. And, you know, that's one of the things that we've done at Greenlight.guru is we've developed a software platform to help companies, whether you're very early on or you've been doing this for, for decades. doesn't matter. We've streamlined the process. We've, we've given you workflows to help capture and manage those design controls and risk management, as well as keeping track of your documents and records and your quality system in a Part 11 aligned environment that just makes life so much easier, especially as you want to be aggressive with your timelines. So I want to thank my guest, Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences today. As always, Mike, it's been a pleasure. And I want everyone to know if you want to learn more about what you can do, what you should do, maybe what you shouldn't do, feel free to get a hold of Mike. You can find him 
at LinkedIn is probably the best way. Just type in and search for Mike Drews, D-R-U-E-S. His company is Vascular Sciences. Also, if you are interested in learning more about the GreenLight.Guru software platform and, and how it can be used as a vehicle to help you capture and, and document your objective evidence as you're preparing for that first human study, go to GreenLight.Guru, request a demo, get a hold of our team, and we'd be happy to share more about that. Once again, this has been John Spear, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.Guru, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.